0: I should really have think privately before I do it publicly, but I'll do it publicly now is Peter Bruce, who had enormous respect for me as a lighty. I was hardly back from England, arrived, inexperienced, and he saw something in me. He allowed me to be hired into business day, literally to come and debate with them on a daily basis, what the editorial should be for the next day. I wrote a lot of their editorials in my twenties mm-hmm. and, um, he then also gave me my first column.
1: The Seaswem More Welsh Experience Podcast. Spread the fire. Welcome back to SMWX. And in this episode, I'd like to pay tribute to Eusebius MacKaiser, author, broadcaster, analyst, most importantly to me, a very good friend and for South Africa, I think one of the most important political voices of our generation who tragically passed away recently and very painfully and very suddenly for those close to him and also for the South African media landscape, its fraternity and its sorority. So I just want to pay tribute to Eusebius in this episode, maybe tell you some things that you might not know about Eusebius and also talk about some of my fondest memories with him. And then I'll also just take some of the extracts from our conversations on SMWX together because over the next few years, I'm sure many people will look into the political thought and the writing of Eusebius And I think those writings will live for a long time. But he didn't do a lot of interviews. He was very selective about the interviews he did. And he was very gracious to come on SMWX four times. And we had really long form conversations, which was quite rare for him. And I think he expounded on a lot of ideas and concepts, which I think will also live for a long time. So I'd like to draw some of what he said out for you, the audience. Because I think here on SMWX, we're building an important archive of thinkers and conversations that will hopefully live long. So to Eusebius, who was a dear friend, he was someone that I definitely looked up to in a major way. He was one of the first black South Africans to go to Oxford um, in the democratic era. And of course, like that seemed like a a very far away dream for many people. But seeing him go to Oxford was a major inspiration to me. He had no idea who I was at the time, but I was always looking at oh, who got the Rhodes Scholarship to go to Oxford. And then I would like investigate who those people were. And everyone knew Eusebius as like someone who got admitted to do a Ph.D. in philosophy at Oxford. And that was just like out of this world. So my first memory of reading his work was he he wrote a short story while he was in Oxford that was that was just really fascinating it was about it was about all these different things but particularly it was about like the the stigma that was associated with HIV AIDS at the time and I was just like I I just thought the short story was so brilliantly written um then I eventually got the, the opportunity and the chance to be interviewed by Eusebius when he started hosting a show on Power FM. And I was like, wow, I'm finally going to get to meet Eusebius for the first time. And that's where we met. He interviewed me, disagreed with a lot of the things I said. Um, and but I was just happy to have to have met him and to come into contact with him. So I was just glad to have met him at that interview. But then I went to Oxford. And while I was there, I released a song. Called Mr. President. Check it out. Um, It was something that Eusebius then wrote to me about and he was like, I listened to your song, it was really interesting when you get back to South Africa for your holidays, come on the show and let's talk about it and I want to profile you. And you can imagine I was like, wow, the great Eusebius has now invited me to an interview and that was just a mark of his generosity because one of the things he constantly did was he took people who were younger than he was and elevated them, gave them a platform, and there are many people like that who he who he really raised and used his platform to to build. Now, when I came for that profile interview on Power FM on his show, and his his Power FM show was 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 quite a culturally important show as well, I was really struck by the work ethic. So let me give you an example of what, what he did. Normally, even I have to say I sometimes because you have so many different interviews, you know, you can think about it maybe for one day or two days, get your questions. What he did was he was like, okay, you're going to go for coffee with my producer and then my producer is going to ask you a bunch of questions and then she's going to record that So there's going to be like a pre-interview with my producer and then I will listen back to the conversation you had with my producer and then I will craft my questions for the interview based on that. He didn't have to do any of that, right? Normally, TV, radio, it's just you come into studio, the person thinks of whatever they want to ask and they ask it. But he was so dedicated to his craft that he would do this pre-interview thing with his producer. And I was like, wow, I'd never seen that before. So that's one of my fond memories about his excellence and his dedication to excellence in the media space. What I wanted to do with this episode, though, in paying tribute to him was just to pay tribute to some of his political ideas, which I think are are really important, which we should be revisiting regularly. And there are three themes that he spoke about on SMWX, which I'd like to focus on. So first, there's no denying that Eusebius was a fierce critic of those in power and He wasn't afraid to criticize government and corruption and he was very unapologetic about that. So I'd like to first give you a sample of some of the things he said about our country. The state our country is in at the moment and his analysis of that and also the way that he would be unapologetically criticizing the people in power. And we'll take a clip from our most recent interview. So have a look at this, how he diagnosed our situation and how unapologetic and brave he was about criticising the most powerful in our country. There's a deeper debate going on right now about the consequences for the country. And, and the consequences are not just limited to the short-term consequences, mm. as you say. I think a lot of people who are on the side that, well, let's just keep him on, are looking at the short-term consequences. Mm. Mm. The rand may depreciate. Forward. What will DD do? Exactly. <laughs> DD may become president. But then there's the question of what are the long-term consequences of setting this precedent? What are the consequences that stretch into the decades or many, many presidencies in advance? And for me, that case seems much stronger or transcends the short term pain. I'm even I'm, I'm prepared. And I think it's probably disingenuous to say there won't be negative short term consequences. For sure. Yeah. Um, they may well be. Yeah. But the question is, are we going to privilege short term stability over setting a very dangerous long term precedent mm. that presidents can do things which seem impeachable. But if we like them, mm. then they can basically do whatever they want. See, so
0: I think that's right. I think we also need to take one step back, right? Because there, there's overlapping shared background stuff in this conversation that I think not everyone, I mean, I think a lot of your viewers would share it, but we've got to make, make it explicit for the dispassionate <laughs> sure. viewer that, that may not be sure whether assumptions in, 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 in our conversation so far are true or not. Mm. So let let's lift them to the surface. The truth of the matter is that South Africa currently is in a massive crisis under the leadership of President Cyril Posa. So when we talk about short-term pain, mm. we must not pretend as if the status quo is painless, Yes. which is why a book, even a book such as Jacques Poe's latest book, is critically important. And as I said in my review of that book, the least interesting part is the excerpts around the EFF and the titillating stuff about them having parties, etc. The part of that book for me that is the most interesting, which is everything that comes before the EFF, which only happens at three, page 350, yeah. is that he reminds us how President Sulra Ramaphosa has kept the president's keepers. Yeah. And in that sense, we mean President Jacob Zuma's keepers. Yeah. So instead of showing, for example, that he has the leadership metal to get rid of people who are corrupt, who have been found wanting, like Arthur Fraser, yeah. or an intelligence minister like Ziaborger. Um, okay. you find that suddenly they become ambassadors or they become a DG in correctional services or they get rearranged within the NPA, within the Hawks, within the SEPs and lo and behold if you look into the details you will find some dodgy former cop is still dodgy in Ettaquini and his entire family has overnight, and I, I couldn't believe these are real examples, they yeah. suddenly be employed as lieutenants, as generals, what, what 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 and they're actually just sitting at home and getting passive income from the state. Yeah. Right? And on top of that, as you know, we're in a situation where the economy is not growing. Millions of black South Africans don't have a stake in either the democracy or in the economy. And you have a situation where under President Ramaphosa's watch, you've got the uprisings that happened last year in Gauteng and in KZN, and there's no intelligence capacity because he never showed the political leadership to be able to turn around the NPA, the Hawks, the SEPs, crime intelligence and that's quite apart from the economic cluster that is a disaster. Mm. For President Sila Ramaphosa, becoming president was a bucketless item, but he's actually been at best mediocre and at worst he's been implicated first as deputy president saying nothing while a lot of state capture happened under his watch, and then as president he hasn't shown definitive leadership, even in this moment is, is, uh, is undecided. Now the reason why I am summarizing that is just mm. to remind the person that has been living on another planet, or who is so caught in the grip of our leftover sentiment, that when we talk about short-term gain, you pain, you and I, mm. we mustn't pretend as if two days ago, South Africa was a stable country. We've had the politicization of the criminal justice system, at best, technical incompetence. Mm. We've got assassinations inside the seps. We've got the cliffing of good career cops, where they would be IPED the head of crime intelligence, our country's most important expert on gangs have been conveniently sidelined, um, Jeremy Vieri, And so you can step up, stack up the details of leadership incompetence under Cyril Ramaphosa. And so when someone says, well, you know what, money was just stolen from the guy's farm. Let's not be disproportionate in what we think the punishment ought to be for... Not even him doing something wrong, but something wrong that was done to him. That is empirically a false description of the presidency of Mr. Ramaphosa. And if someone were to write the Ramaphosa years and really do an analytical job of describing and then assessing what it was like as president, even before Arthur Fraser entered the saps, mm-hmm. I think he comes out looking quite mediocre. And and the reason I wanted to mention that is that when people do up this kind of weighing, oh my God, what would life be under Didi? Mm. Please be mm. mindful of the fact that life under Ramaphosa is
1: terrible. So that was really interesting. I mean, to not only call for a whole resignation and also to say like in the media space, it's often that you say, well, this is the one side of the story, but this is the other side. But in some moments you actually have to say, despite the two sides, this is the right side. I think that's a really important thing. And also just to say, look, yes, we are in a hot mess. There's no denial about that. And we can't keep giving a second chance just because of the end of apartheid and the end of racism. And, you know, we need to look at where we are right now. I think that was always a strong thing that he said. The second theme that he spoke on on the channel, which I found interesting, was that we didn't always agree... But he was he was an intimidating person to to debate against. So I remember us going out for lunch one day and he said, cool. We started talking about the Constitution. Is the Constitution all it's cracked up to be? Or should the Constitution, you know, be scrapped and that major debate? And we started talking about it. And then after our conversation, he was like, you know what? Let's let's have a thing on our on our show, on on one of our shows. And let's actually have this. But let's frame it as a debate rather than just a conversation. And when Eusebius says to you, I want to debate with you in public, that that was uh, a scary idea. But it was also just a just a way of, of him saying, like, let's let's discuss our disagreements in public as equals. And let's show people that you don't always have to agree and you can have productive debates about the future of South Africa, because none of us is is always right about what's happening. And so. Listen to this segment of what I think is one of the most interesting defenses of the Constitution and the way that Eusebius de- delineated between what the different parts of the Constitution are and how he just how he set out his side of the debate. Because I think it's a really brilliant exhibition in just first clarifying what you mean before you even start. So check this out on the Constitution.
0: In the public space, I think there are two interesting questions. One question is, is the Constitution the right vision for the country? A separate question is, would changing the constitutional text make a difference to the justice project?
1: So it seems to me that the Constitution is saying we come from a bad place, and this Constitution now marks a crucial departure point from that place. And is in some ways the opposite of the bad place that we came from. Mm-hmm. Um, the bad place is never named, um, but and then uh, I would agree with you. It seems that there are three key values which underpin all the remaining uh, rights and enact uh, rights and um, opportunities that are afforded to the citizens as a result of those values, and that's human dignity, equality. And freedom, Mm. and it seems to me that you can almost read the constitution through the prism of those three key values, um, for for lack of a a better term. Yeah. Um, So bad place. We're going to a new place, and in order to get there, everything has to be based on dignity, equality, and freedom. Yeah.
0: I think that's right. You know, I, I was thinking though that. Notwithstanding overlapping consensus between you and me about aspects of the constitutional text and constitutionalism that haven't succeeded in getting us to a just society. I mean, I think the easiest part of this dialogue is going to be agreeing on the gap between the Constitution and empirical reality. Anyone who thinks the Constitution has delivered justice is living in cloud cuckoo land or in (laughs) Santon. (laughs) And that's that's just for me a complete non-starter. Where you and I will disagree later Mm. is the extent to which the constitution Mm. is an important part of the diagnosis of the problem. But to to come back to this Mm. first question, and I really hope that our viewers and listeners are enjoying not rushing to the question of, is the constitution a problem? And can changing it Mm. be part of the solution in a meaningful way? The question of the vision is is a really interesting one. I think there's more to be said and feel free to push back. There's more to be said appreciatively about the constitutional text than I think you give it credit for. Firstly, you are right about the vagueness problem. But I think good, mm. good legal interpretation scholars agree necessarily that it is intrinsic to language that there will always be a vagueness problem. There wouldn't be a need for legal adjudication if ordinary language sufficed to understand all rights in all sources of law, not just the Constitution as a text, but also other statutes. If we take, for example, a matter involving a relative of yours today, the Criminal Procedure Act is subject to a day-long back and forth between the state and lawyers for the former president, Jacob Zuma. Why? Why?
1: I'm not related to advocate (laughs) Brayton, but...
0: Duche. And why is that the case? Because statutes are written in natural language. Natural language is both lucid, but is also subject to interpretation. So that's a quasi-defense on the vagueness issue. And I agree there's vagueness. I just don't think it's unique to us. I don't even think it's unique to the Constitution. I think it's intrinsic in all sources of law, and that's how legal adjudication arises as a discipline in the first place. But I I concede it. I just think you are harsh about what to do with that fact. For example, as a philosophy student, one of the vagueness elements that always fascinated me is dignity. You find in case law, and I challenge lawyers who hate us non-lawyers engaging these issues to respond to what I'm about to say and to prove me to be wrong with citation of case law. If you were to do a deep dive into the appearance of those three foundational values definitionally in our case law, Sizwe, you will find that Mm. there's no self-standing definition of dignity that doesn't reference either freedom or equality. But if you then go and you do a deep dive into the appearance, definitionally, of the concept of equality and substantive equality, in particular in our case law, it constantly refers back to dignity.
1: But my pro- my point is not that it's one or the other. My point is that what we need is both. We need an effective state and constitutional enablement at the same time in order to tackle this this kind of
0: problem? So
1: let me say a couple of things. Firstly, like
0: you, I don't like the word and the concept to the extent that the concept is clear, and I'm not sure it is, non-racialism. I think if you are genuinely committed to racial justice, you should frame it as a commitment to anti-racism. I prefer that language for reasons I've said elsewhere, but it's worth reiterating it a million times until it becomes trite anti is a more active bit of language non doesn't suggest that i am using my energies deliberately intentionally to oppose something racism sure. Sure. yeah is a fundamental oppressive system racialism on some definitions may simply, for example, refer to phenotype. And I'd rather know that if you are in the business of racial justice, that you are committed to putting it all together, actively and intentionally taking steps in community with others to eliminate the oppressive system of racism, its most obvious manifestation being white supremacy. The language of non-racialism, for me, doesn't capture that. South Africans who are older than both you and me don't like our critique, which is mm. perhaps one we should have on your platform or mine on another occasion. There are many people who mm. share broadly your politics and mine, but who think that we don't pay sufficient attention to the historical movements, for example, mass democratic movement in the 80s, who had a robust clear understanding of non-racialism and that we shouldn't be annoyed by the misappropriation of the DA. I get that. But like you, I think it's worth asking, even if something served us well in the 80s, can we recognize that perhaps a new language is needed, even if some of the old politics is retained, because the old language Mm. is misappropriated in ways that you must pay attention to and not romanticize more accurate usage in the past that is gone? I am on board with that. There, you and I are totally on the same wavelength. Where we part ways, you know my view because we're friends, but for the public Mm. to get a sense of where you and I part ways, and my view is very simple here. Mm. The state and other actors like business or powerful individuals who've got privilege and power have the burden. Yeah to bring about a just South Africa. A text is just words. What you've reminded me of, which is kind of obvious, but in a deep sense, there's a lot to be said for this obviousness, is that if I overstate my position, then I'm implying that the text doesn't matter at all. And you are right that the text does matter. So what the text says is critically important. Otherwise, we may as well not have a text. That you've convinced me of what i'm less persuaded <laughs> sure, by sure. what i'm less persuaded by is that if yeah. we changed the text to be a bit more specific in the preamble that we are trying to undo the mm. legacy of colonialism and apartheid that we are fighting for racial justice that we are mm. anti patriarchy anti racism i can't see how that will make Cyril Ramaphosa less useless tomorrow
1: now funny story about that episode of smwx Yours truly forgot to press record. So there's no video of that. That's why you only saw it as an audio. And I remember um, like we were we we had this hour long debate on the Constitution and then. I didn't press record and then so then Eusebius was it was cool. It was great. And I didn't even realize. And then I was like because it was a Zoom call during Covid. And then he was like, great, y'all yeah, send it to me, whatever, cool. And then I was like, he, he, he ended the call. And you know when the call ends and then it triggers something in your mind? Like when the call ends, then it's supposed to say recording stopped. And then I didn't hear that. And I was like, so I didn't record. And then um, I had to tell him that I had not recorded. And I remember being so scared because I was like, I just took an hour of your time and I didn't press record. And I remember sending this voice note, like, friend. So I didn't press record on our conversation. And he could have been, you know, angry or whatever. He he just literally laughed. And he was like, cool, let's release it as a podcast. Let's just get it out there. So that's the behind the scenes on that one. Um, Eusebius, I think, was also really interesting because as much as he criticized corruption... And he criticized government and, dare I say, the ANC government. He was a fierce criti- a critic of racism as well, because I think a lot of people will often criticize the government to hide that they actually have racist views. Or other people will, will criticize racism, but they'll defend the government. Eusebius was unique in this sense that he, he was a fierce critic of racism. And racism in the media... So we had a really interesting conversation where he spoke about his experiences of racism in the South African media. And we all know that the South African media has racial bias. We all know that the South African media, <coughs> media covers certain angles from a certain white gaze. We know South African newsrooms, the senior ranks of private newsrooms are often disproportionately white and male. And Eusebius wasn't scared to talk about that. So. Listen to the story of how he um, how he navigated. On the one hand, when you're in media, you make enemies of very powerful people. But then on the other hand, you also have to make enemies of your bosses sometimes because they don't understand the racial dynamics or they're just being flat out racist themselves. So you're fighting corrupt politicians, but now you're fighting a racist boss at the same time. And how do you navigate that within the space of south african media i think it was really interesting on that so let's take a listen to that clip what are some of the experiences that you've had that have caused you to see the salience and the importance of race in the south african media
0: Mm, it's a really really important question um, and i've reflected on it because your platform is so important and the issue is so important that, that I didn't want to just shoot from the hip. Mm. I think firstly, the one thing that struck me early on is the narrative framing that you also spoke about in the first installment of this series, mm. that our media renders people of color, black people, brown people, invisible. And that even when newsrooms have a numerical majority of staff that are black, it doesn't necessarily mean that the legacy of white supremacy within the South African media, like the rest of society, have been eliminated. So the one thing that has always struck me is how if you produce journalism or propose to produce journalism that is pro-poor, that is pro-social justice, that is critical of various forms of hegemony that you are immediately marked out as some sort of maverick, which is weird because in a country like ours, you would think that having a even explicit bias in favor of telling the stories of black people, of working class people, people living under conditions of poverty, that you have an obvious basic duty as a journalist to do so because that's the experience that is default for the vast majority of citizens. And I think my first sort of systemic encounter with the ways in which racism as well as class hegemony plays out within the South African newsroom is how you come up against and you get marked out as being something of a maverick.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Controversial is where controversial, you and all you're really doing is asking tough questions about neoliberal economics, about consensus around orthodox economics around whether or not you know the state is truly the only actor responsible for corruption what about non-state actors you ask those questions and suddenly you come up against forces that don't like it
2: when i first
1: heard you i thought you were white um and, and actually even though, as, as you say and as we know, there are more and more black voices in the media, there's a difference between having black journalists and having black voices who adopt an authoritative voice on a topic and are capable of swaying opinion on a topic. And, and so representation is not just about having more black journalists, it's about having more black journalists of authority who are both themselves prepared to assume the authoritative voice and 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 and, who have a readership or an audience that that uh, believes it um and and it's actually when you think about it, that's still very, very rare in the South African media landscape
0: that's you've you've nailed it One of the themes that you and I wanted to explore is representation. Mm. And when I thought about that, I thought there's two parts to that. One question is, Is is diversity conducive to changing narratives that are one-dimensional? The answer is yes, but yes, but it depends on whether if you get more minorities, black people, women in the newsroom, whether you give them sufficient power to be truly included in strategic decisions and in what the final copy is that goes to print, Mm -hmm. because -hmm. you can black editors um, that we've had for many years now, the Sunday Times, Sunday World, EP Herald, black woman even, mm. the, Wettin, the Daily Dispatch, and some of them have done well. I um, don't want to take pot shots at them. And some of them have done less well. And some of them are good examples of cosmetic changes, where you haven't seen discursive change, just because you've had a leaf yeah. change. At the, at, at the helm mm. and that speaks to your point some of them were just not strong in terms of leadership and personality and weren't ready for it um others came up against challenges some left i mean you know you take someone like song absolutely brilliant mm. i think you write a full book in which it tells us what truly happened that mm. day. at but it's very mm. clear that, that he was truly independent-minded in some way mm. um I mean, can you imagine me being an editor or deputy editor of a place like Financial Mail or, or Business Day? I mean, I would have passed <laughs> five minutes. I probably wouldn't even be approached. Um, if I were to be an editor of a newspaper, it would have to be a paper like The Mail and Guardian where there's already a, ident- a coincidence of, of, of mm. ideological beforehand. But your <laughs> point is absolutely spot on. And what I do want to say... Um, at the risk of being controversial, which shouldn't be unlike me, Mm. is that there's also a way in which some white people who are in control of the money condescend Mm. to black readers, viewers and listeners by making certain black appointments insincerely, hoping to pull the wool over the eye of the public, but secretly knowing that actually this person is weak, either technically weak, ideologically weak, um, or they can effectively be controlled. And I'm not saying that black hmm. journalists can't think for themselves. There are many hmm. black journalists who are excellent, including some excellent um, editors who are black. But there's also, let's be honest, a certain hmm. kind of black writer, commentator, that have their careers sponsored by a white liberal. There are, you know, many a black journalists who, and Anton Harbour who proudly, when he retires one day, say, I groomed so-and-so, this person I took under my wings. And I'm always scared when white liberal media elders talk about their favorite black journalists.
1: It's also about, when I think of these subscription models now that are becoming, you know, Uh, all the rage is it much better if you just have a bunch of rich white subscribers uh, and 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 you serve them what they want all the time is that really serving the public interest or is it serving a very skewed subscriber who comes from a very specific uh perspective interest
0: yeah i think that's a brilliant observation And that is why I'm so thrilled that this series is a partnership and a multi-year one because I was saying just yesterday to mostly private sector attendees of a conference where I did a keynote, Mm. right at the end of people always want to know practically, now that you've scared us about the state of our democracy, what the hell can we actually do you see this? The shopping list is easy to do, and there are no easy to do's or fixing our country's myriad problems, as you know, as well as I do. Mm. But one of the things I often say to to capitalists is, listen, if you finally, appropriately, feel a bit guilty about either your collusion with the state, in terms of stealing from society, or your culpable silence, not speaking out against your own, against the likes of McKinsey, or not speaking out against the state because you want tenders, here's Mm. some things you can do, even if you do it secretly. And one of the things you need to do is to give money to independent critical journalism precisely so that platforms like this one, projects that I want to still do, mm. pl- platforms like New Frame and Ground Up can produce journalism that can be read without being paid for because the alternative you know, is that it becomes prohibitive to access it. And it also means that you have a Polity, you've got public discourse that simply is not genuinely democratic. Mm -hmm. All the things that I, in philosophy, and you, in politics, theorized about—what kind of society ideally did we want to live in—a deliberative democracy depends on a diverse group of participants in the public debate. And there's way too much journalism that is exclusionary. Most of the people who will engage you and I are either going to be professional journalists mm-hmm. um, or it's going to be part of the money classes. And although I think even, in a, even if our linked language frameworks are a bit complex in this conversation, mm-hmm. there is a pro- poor critique of the media in our discussion, and um, of course, the, the people that we are hoping to inscribe into the conversation are not going to be accessing this platform. And that is a, mm. that is a massive problem. I see mm. that even with my beloved Mail and Guardian, I love the Mail and Guardian, he's a columnist for them and is one of mm. the main writers. Mm. But if you go onto the letter, letters pages, really the editor receives letters, ironically enough, from people who probably regard themselves as incredibly progressive English-speaking, like mm. right, the South Africans, who get mightily pissed off about things that you and I would regard as trite when it mm. comes to, a, you know, just a simple little column explaining white privilege. And I think I was like, oh my God, if this is what the average white, or well, not necessarily the average, but this is what a white English-speaking, self-styled, progressive, liberal reader of mine thinks. Mm. What about the reader of the citizen or News24? And yeah. what complicates it is that I'm only reaching... A certain portion of readership, uh, which is precisely to your
2: point. Mm.
0: And I don't know what the solution to that is. I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Mm. It seems when we do media for black people, we also banalize black people, and I confess to be hypocritical. Take a channel like Love. I'm addicted to it. <laughs> they also spend that uh, genuinely back owned media, sometimes. Mm also are very reductive in their depictions of black life, which is equally yeah. problematic.
1: Yeah, you know, we we're in a bind and I don't think we've we've got to the point yet in South Africa where we have a significant number of independent, anti-racist and and various forms of oppression and bigotry. Um and I, I include here, you know uh, politics that recognizes queer people, uh, of course, uh, politics of gender justice as well, on the one hand um, that that takes representation seriously as well, but on the other hand, is also excellent at journalism at exposing corruption at uh, in a nuanced way, um, holding a corrupt state that happens to have a number of black leaders feet to the fire, and for me we you know, we all need to think about how how do we build that? Because we're just not there. We're just not there yet. And and we all know it. We all feel a sense of frustration um, about the landscape and how it depicts what we know is wrong. It's like, we know the country is messed up, but we also know the way we're receiving how messed up the country is, is messed up.
0: Yeah, in ways, that's interesting. If we come back to the journalism, you Mm. made a point in our WhatsApp chat the other day that resonated with me, and I think it generalizes to not just journalism but across our society. Hmm. There are certain complexities that, as a result of what you've just described, are lost. Um, I was saying on Twitter and Facebook the other day that we get rightly, some of us anyway, triggered by people who falsely compare apartheid South Africa to post-apartheid South Africa. And the analogy runs out very quickly because the differences run deep.
2: Mm. But
0: the consequence of us pushing back against a racist who insists that the two times of history are similar, the consequence of that is that we sometimes let this ANC government off the hook. Yeah. And there are very
1: few journalism platforms. Or the EFF for that matter.
0: Exactly. Whereas you put it, you know, we need to we need to explain and push back against this false dichotomy that mm. if you are anti-racist, that you must be very generous in your depiction of the ANC-led states. Mm. And that's and, and absolute BS. Mm. So there's a lot of complexity that is lost. And part of the problem is also the juniorization um, quite apart from the racism history and the hegemonies that we flagged early in this conversation. If you don't have enough gravitas, either because you're an academic who came into journalism, who transposed your skill set, or just because you put in the hours, you've been in the field, you've earned your time, and now you can really write excellent news analyses, reportage, and and essays for me to read on a Sunday morning, there isn't that kind of complexity, and Mm. that's a a real threat. So yeah. We also have a quality problem, quite apart from a racism problem. These we also have just a quality mm. problem. Mm. When you go onto Seven O Two or any radio station, it's like mm. going into someone's house, and almost quite literally, because many people will listen to you doing your radio show while they're inside their house or inside their car. So their connection with you is deeply personal. Now, if I come into that space and I've just been hired with my left wing racial politics, mm. and I tell the average seven or two person to examine their views about themselves, that maybe not everything is okay. Maybe you're not as decent as you think you are. Maybe just because you're not an explicit racist doesn't mean you don't have implicit racism in you. It's the equivalent in terms of how they experience me of me knocking on their front door and saying, Pete, let me in. I want to tell you about your white supremacy. And so it's deeply personal. Mm. And I just took the decision that I don't give a damn about whether I have a 20-year career or whether I have a two-year career on 702 or a five-year career. I want to be remembered for centering conversations dialectically that try and dig so that we can get at the truth about the history of colonialism and racism in our country, what it has done to all of us black and white people, how it manifests in the present, and to both educate and to challenge and to debate and frame debates and do so, um, because I think that is what a good broadcasters should do.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And what helps if I can distill all of that muddled responses, is that at the heart of that decision was a refusal um, to be obsessed with popularity. So people mm-hmm. say, mm. you know what you see, because I don't always like you, but you were listening. I prefer that to someone liking me uncritically. Mm. I um, never aspired to be a souvenir presenter or to be a coupling presenter who is gorgeous with a six-pack. No one hates you, but quite frankly, what, what are you leaving behind the morning after you're dead? What will people you remember you for? Mm. Um, for me, it was important to say, truth and dialectic is far more important than popularity. And I'd far rather someone respect me than like me, or even worse, they are unmoved by my journalism.
1: Yeah, so I think Eusebius, the best way to remember him is to revisit his ideas, to revisit the things he said. I think we should go back to his books, three of which he published. Revisit those ideas now. But also revisit the kinds of things he said in public, not just on SMWX, but in many places, and make sure that we preserve the archive of his thought to spark debate, to create productive disagreement, but also to pay tribute to a brilliant young Black South African in the democratic era who did things that hadn't been done before and who paved a way for many, like me in the media space, who came after him. So my sincerest sympathies to all those who watched Eusebius. Of course, I've conveyed my sympathies to those close to him, but I do so again here. And may Eusebius MacKaiser rest in peace. The Cesar mbolfo Welsh Experience Podcast. aye,